We have the privilege not only of being in the King's presence, but having Him speak to us. So listen now to God's holy and inerrant Word. As they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that we are invited by You into worship this morning. And we thank You that You are so kind to stoop and condescend and meet with us this morning. We pray that as we open Your Word this morning... We do pray that you would meet us by your Spirit, that you would bring conviction of sin and brokenness, but also of the righteousness that is ours in Jesus. We pray that you would meet, meet each of us individually as we have gathered this morning, that you would meet those who are discouraged, those who are heavily burdened in this life, those who come through these doors with a great many questions and even doubts in their minds. We pray that you would meet with us. And for those who have gathered simply because we're excited to be with your people, we pray that you would meet us, that you would overwhelm us with your beauty and your grace. Father, we pray that you would reveal to us all, no matter how we find ourselves this morning, that you would reveal to us all that we are far more broken than we could ever imagine. But because of Jesus, we can be assured this morning that we are also far more loved and accepted and secure than we could have ever dreamed possible. So we pray that you would lift our heads, lift our eyes to see Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. The children ages 3 to 1st grade, you are dismissed now to Children's Church. If you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, you'll be taken to your class. The Hands of the King is what I've been calling this series this fall as we've been 
looking at the miracles of Jesus in Luke's gospel. In J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings stories, when Aragorn came to the city of Gondor and he met there with those who were sick and injured and and dying, uh, he started laying his hands on people. And they were healed when he laid his hands on people. And when the crowds saw it, they they started to, it, it stirred a memory in them. Um, and they started whispering together about this prophecy that went like this, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. And all fall, we've been looking at the true story of the rightful king. With his healing hands, he comes and he gives sight to the blind, and he opens the ears of the deaf, and he raises the lame to walk again, and even raises the dead, and on and on we could go. And as we reflect this morning on the final miracle in Luke's gospel, Jesus' resurrection and his appearance to his disciples, I want to reflect this morning with you on how the rightful king is also the revolutionary king. See, the hope of the Jewish leaders with the help of the Romans was that, was really, it was to kill Jesus, but even more than that, they wanted to silence Jesus. They wanted to shut him up. They wanted to put a stop to his revolution. After all, he was walking around claiming to be the one true and rightful king of all men. But all the Gospels tell us that when they killed Jesus, they didn't stop his revolution. In fact, they unleashed it because he triumphed over the grave. If you remember the story of Jesus' crucifixion, you remember that there were two men who were on trial. One was a political revolutionary, a zealot named Barabbas, and the other was Jesus, this revolutionary who was claiming to be the one true king. And in the late 1970s, a man named Tom Skinner, he was speaking at the Urbana Missions Conference in Illinois. And he said, you know, it's easy to stop a Barabbas, right? You let him go, and he'll possibly go out and round up some more guerrillas and start another riot, but you can catch him again and lock him up again, he was saying. And then he asked this question, but how? How do you stop Jesus? And this is what he said, they took and nailed him to a cross. They took and buried him, rolled a stone over his grave, wiped their hands and said, that's one radical who will never disturb again. We've gotten rid of him. We'll never hear any more of his words of revolution. And Skinner went on. Three days later, Jesus Christ pulled off one of the greatest political coups of all time. He got up out of the grave. When he arose from the dead, The Bible now calls him the second man, the new man, the leader of a new creation, a Christ who has come to overthrow the existing order and to establish a new order that is not built on man. When you're introducing a a sermon, you hope to give a little taste, a little hint of where we're headed with things, a little bit of why you should pay attention this morning. Why does Luke give us this story 
as the closing story of his gospel account, Jesus meeting with his disciples after the resurrection, because he's saying to you today, the miracle of the resurrection, it launched a revolution, right? He's saying to you, it revolutionized the lives of Jesus' followers. It turned their worlds upside down. It changed them, and it made them new. And so when Luke writes this, he's saying to you, it changed them, and it can change you too. And it can revolutionize your life too, and change you, and make you new. Because the, the revolutionary king, he has come to overthrow our lives, and to make us new. So the, that's what you and I need. But I, I think even more than that, a recognition of what we need, that's what you and I are really hoping for in this life that we can be transformed, that we can really be changed deeply, that we can become new. And so I want us to see two things about this revolutionary king, two things this revolutionary king Jesus came to give us in this passage. He came to give us a revolutionary joy and a revolutionary message. So first, a revolutionary joy. Do Do you know what could absolutely revolutionize your life? If you had a joy that was so deep, that was so profound, that was so anchored and concrete, and it just it, that was so unshakably at the center of your life that it could never be touched by the circumstances of your life. If you could get that, that would change you. To have a joy that's so rooted and so established that you would be free from being pushed and pulled, you know, rising and falling with the ebb and flow of life circumstances. To have that kind of joy, it would set you free. It would set you free to face the brokenness of this world in your life with incredible strength and with incredible confidence and with purpose. That's the kind of joy that would change you from the inside out. Now, I want you to hold that thought for a moment because I want you to think through this story with me that ends in verse 52 with the disciples completely changed, returning to Jerusalem, it says, with great joy. Listen, the miracle of Jesus' resurrection, it it was such a category-bursting event. It was so revolutionary that none of Jesus' followers were looking for it when it came, despite the fact that he told them it was going to happen. They still weren't looking for it. I mean, you read the stories that lead up to this story, and you will realize that the women, they went to the tomb to anoint a dead body, not to find an alive Jesus, right? Disciples were walking the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they were so convinced of the finality of Jesus' death that they didn't even recognize Jesus when he started walking with them. These other disciples, they're, they're huddled together in this room because they're afraid. Right? They were thinking, the revolution's over. Whatever we were thinking Jesus was going to do, it's done now. They have killed our leader, our master, our friend. It's over. They were so not looking for a resurrection... That when Jesus showed up in verse 36, Luke says, they thought they saw a ghost. Right? So you know what Jesus did? He, 
Well, you read the story. He said, touch me and see. Right? Here are the nail prints. Here's my flesh. I mean, he offered his hands to his friends for them to grab his hands and feel the warmth of his hands, to feel his pulse through the nail prints, to hold him, excuse me, and to feel the joints in his fingers and in his wrist. He was real. I mean, this this is what we call in the business a game changer. (laughs) Somebody came back from the dead, and it was huge. And the weirdest part of this story has to be the details in verses 41 through 43. Because here comes Jesus, he appears before them, and then he asks them for something to eat. Let me tell you, the, the only way this gets included in the story is because it was so bizarre and so shocking to them that they all remembered it. Like they were sitting around and, remember when we thought we were seeing a ghost? Yeah. And then Jesus took my supper and he ate it right in front of us. He's alive. He's not a ghost. And so listen, as they're trying to wrap their minds around what this could mean, what could this mean? An actual, literal, historical, physical, bodily resurrection. Right in the middle of it, you get this fascinating phrase that shows up in verse 41. Luke wrote that after Jesus showed them his hands and feet, they still disbelieved for joy. And they were marveling. Now that's disbelief for joy. That, that's kind of a hard phrase to really get your mind around. Um, it, we're totally going to have to take a break from the Lord of the Rings after this series. I know that. Um, but as I was trying to figure out how to communicate this idea of disbelieving joy to you, I remember this one scene. In the story, Frodo and Sam, they've gone to Mount Doom and they've thrown in the, the evil ring and it's been destroyed. And they laid down in despair at all the horrors around them. And Tolkien writes, they were hiding their eyes from death, and they fell asleep. But later, Sam Gamgee, the hobbit, he awoke to see Gandalf, the wizard. And Tolkien wrote this, Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment... Between bewilderment and great joy, at last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. And connecting the dots to what this meant, he then asked Gandalf this question. Is everything sad going to come untrue? See, the disciples, they were staring with open mouths. They were caught between utter bewilderment and great joy, disbelieving for joy. Why? Because they were seeing in the flesh the answer to that hobbit's question, is everything sad going to come untrue? And the miracle of the resurrection says yes Everything sad, everything broken, everything damaged, everything wounded, everything corrupted and wicked and evil is going to one day come untrue. The revolutionary king is going to put everything right. The older I get, 
now in my 40s, um, the more I feel my finiteness. Um, I, I think there are a few of you that feel that as well. Um, my doctor seems to have very little good news for me anymore. It, it's all about um, you're getting arthritis in your neck, you have degenerative discs, your, uh, your cholesterol's too high, you need reading glasses. It's just bad news. Um, falling apart. But also, the older that you get, um, many of you know this, uh, the more you seem to be exposed to the true harsh brokenness of the world. It's evil and it's corruption. Right? The darkness, the truly self-centered bent of humanity that oppresses and wounds all the time. But also, this gets a little worse before it gets better. The older you get, the list of regrets that you have in your life grows exponentially. You begin to think about all the things, I thought I would do that, but I don't think I'll ever get to do that. I'll never be able to afford this. I'll never be able to go here. I'll never be able to see this. And all of these things that you're noticing that are slipping through the cracks of time. But listen to me. What happens if you know that there is a revolutionary king who promises to bring real revolution and one day, someday, make everything sad come untrue? Then you can face the brokenness of time's decay. Then you can face the brokenness of this world and of yourself with hope with revolutionary joy. A joy that sets you free even to let all of your regrets go and to truly sacrifice in this life for others. To live for a day beyond today, not just to get what you can get today. Because there is a day coming when this king will come again and he will bring with him the new heavens and the new earth. And all your regrets in this life will only add to your joy in the next. It's a revolutionary joy that is being experienced here. But you, you could even listen to that and you could say, fine, but that's so off in the future. What about now? You know, what makes Christianity utterly unique among every major world religion is that Christianity is utterly dependent upon historical events. When you think about it, at its core, Christianity isn't a philosophy of life. At its core, it's not a value system. At its core, it's not a moral code. At its core, it's not a new way of living. At its core, Christianity, it is anchored. And it is rooted. And it is established in the concrete events of history. This is the bold claim of Christianity. Something happened 2,000 years ago that changes everything. That revolutionizes everything. Everything, the rightful king, God himself, came as a man. And he lived and he walked the dusty streets of Galilee. And he was crucified and he came back to life. That is a game changer. right? Did you notice the first thing that the resurrected Jesus said to his friends, his disciples? He, okay, first let me tell you what he didn't say. He didn't say, here's a new philosophy that will lead you to peace if you follow it. He didn't say, here's a new moral code, that if you follow it, 
and keep the checklist, you'll get peace in the end. The resurrected Jesus came with a declaration, verse 36, a pronouncement, peace to you. Everything, he was saying, has been accomplished for you. The verdict is in, sealed in history by the unsealed grave of Jesus. All your guilt and all your shame was dealt with at the cross fully and finally. One author I read years ago called the resurrection, called the resurrection God's receipt. And I love that image because we all know what a receipt is. Uh, it's proof. It's why that lady standing by the door at Walmart always checks your receipt in your bag, right? It, it's proof that I paid for what's in this bag. You cannot charge me again, right? All your guilt, all your shame, all your anxiety in life that keeps you so, so very busy, so, so very busy trying to make sure you measure up, trying to make sure you're lovable and that you matter and that you're important and significant. The resurrection, the pronouncement of peace, that is your receipt. To have that is to have a revolutionary joy right in the middle of your life that is untouchable and unshakable by whatever life brings your way. To know that is to possess a revolutionary joy that frees you to face the world with strength and with confidence and purpose no matter what. Okay, second and last, I want us to see that this revolutionary king, he came to give us a revolutionary message. Jesus is talking about this revolutionary message in verses 44 through 49, if you look at the passage. And if you look at those verses, you'll see that Jesus is primarily saying two things about that message. He's saying that the whole Bible, verse 44, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms is fulfilled in him. And then he's, he's saying the story of the Bible has one main character, and it's me. But Jesus is also saying in verse 46 that the whole Bible is about the gospel, the life the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So let's put it like this. This revolutionary message is utterly Christ-centered and gospel-centered. At its very center, this message is about the person and work of Jesus. Now, why would that be revolutionary? Think about this. We live in a world where the resume is everything. Here's what I mean. When you applied to go to college, maybe, what did you submit? Your highest ACT score or your lowest ACT score? Or when your kids were applying for college, which one did you encourage them to send in? The highest or the lowest? What do you include on your resume? All your list of failures? Because there are plenty of them in your life. Or did you list all of your accomplishments? When you walk in for that interview, or, or when your boss calls you in to talk about a potential pr promotion, did you nail it by talking about how incompetent you are and how poorly equipped you are to, to do the task? Or did you nail it by talking about how competent you are and how you can do it? 
But let's, let, let me jump to another realm, to the realm of relationships. The only res- reason many of you, including me, are, are married in this room right now is because you learned how to successfully spin the truth about yourself. Right? Dating is generally the most dishonest thing we ever do in life. Um, I, I know that the only reason I got Jennifer to marry me is because while we were dating, I did such a good job of not acting like myself. Um, you know, so if you want to get, we all learn this, if you want to get to date number two, on date number one, don't act like yourself. Um, it, it's all about the resume that you can put out there. Let's turn the gaze a little bit more internally, psychologically now. Why is it that your happiness in life rises and falls with your successes and failures in life or on any given day? Why do you vacillate so extremely in your life from pr- between pride and utter despair? Why do you spend so much energy pr- trying to prove to yourself that you're lovable, worth- worthy, and significant? Why is it so important to you to divide the world and pat yourself on the back and say, well, at least I'm not like them? Why? Isn't it interesting that Jesus immediately started explaining the revolutionary, Christ-centered, gospel-centered message of the Bible as soon as his disciples were convinced that he wasn't a ghost? It's almost like he knew them. It's almost like he knew you and me, that given a chance and left to ourselves, we'll immediately start turning the Christian life into a matter of building our resume. It's the all-too-familiar bent of our lives to believe that if I obey God, God will love me. If I'm disciplined and I I work hard enough and I I can muster up up enough sincerity, then God will be pleased with me. If I achieve enough, if I do enough, then I'll know God loves me. I'll know He's happy with me. I'll know He accepts me. And, of course, the evil twin sister of the resume approach to life is just filled with fear and guilt and shame, the thought that God couldn't love someone like me. I've blown it too big this time. I'm far too fallen. I've failed too much. It's almost like He knew us. Like He knew the bent of our hearts. We'll start retracing those familiar steps over and over again. So Jesus explains that the revolutionary message is that the whole Bible is about him and that it's all about what he came to accomplish for you. He came and lived the life you should have lived but couldn't live. He came and died the death you should have died. His resurrection is the receipt to you that you are already loved, that you are already valued, that you already matter to the rightful king. Understand that, and it will start turning your life upside down, and it will change you and revolutionize you, because this message says, obey, but not to get love. Obey because you already are loved. Strive and change and live differently in this life, not to gain approval, but because the case is already closed, and you couldn't possibly be more loved, or more accepted, or more approved of than you already are in Jesus, who died and rose from the dead for you. 
You know how we often play the what-if game with ourselves? I'm very good at the game um, because I'm always thinking about what would I do if I had a million dollars? What would I do if I could do anything I wanted to do? Um, or, or negatively, we play it sometimes when life gets really hard. What would, I, what would my life be like? What would I do if I got rid of this problem or that problem? Or what if I could just get rid of this burden that's weighing me down? We all play some version of that game because we instinctively know that we live in stories. We instinctively are looking for the narrative, right? How differently the story of my life would look if this or if that. This is why the theologian G.K. Chesterton, he called fairyland and fairy tales nothing but the sunny countryside of common sense. In all our stories, and some of you have heard me say this before, in all our stories of Cinderella's, We're asking what if. What if it were true that poor little cinder girls could one day become princesses and live happily ever after? I know it sounds cheesy. What if, what if the power of beauty's love was so deep and so profound and so immense that it could turn the beast into someone lovable? What if, what if Sleeping Beauty's cold and lifeless death could really be softened to just a sleep from from which she awakes when kissed by the true prince? What if the beauty of Frozen, right? Your kids know the song. Sharp and sheer could split the ice apart and break your frozen hearts. What if that were true? I mean, all our Robin Hoods, all our Luke Skywalkers, which I'm really excited about that this Christmas, um, all our superheroes, right? They are all echoes of this longing that we all have. That someone would love us this deeply and would come and redeem us. What if? I mean, what if? The whole message of the Bible is really about one person, one hero, who came for us, for you. What if the whole message of the Bible was really about the work of one hero who came and in his life, his death, and his resurrection killed death and broke brokenness and destroyed destruction? One hero who came to make everything sad untrue. What if? The revolution, this revolutionary message has the power to change your story, is what I'm saying. Your narrative. Let me give you just two brief applications as we close about how this revolutionary message uh, will revolutionize your life. First, verse 52. It should cause us to worship to fall down and worship. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Now, when I say worship, my point has nothing to do with uh, about singing louder in a worship service or something like that. That can be involved, I guess. But 
to worship something is to bring that something or to bring that someone into the very center of your life and to see it as the ultimate beauty and the ultimate longing that can alone satisfy the deepest desires of your life. What if Jesus really did this for you? Was a real person who took the whip and took the thorns and took the nails for you? What if He came back from the dead for you to proclaim peace to you? What if the nails that were driven into His hands were the final nails driven into the coffin of all your resume building in your life? If that's true, then what choice do you have but to center your life on Him and His work for you? And that will change you in every sphere of life, vocationally, relationally, psychologically, as well as spiritually. Make Him the center of your life, and it will free you to face this broken world with strength and hope and confidence and purpose, and you'll become a better worker, and you'll become a better friend, and you'll become a better spouse because He is at the center of your life. Second, If this revolutionary message is true, it will change your narrative. It will change your story by sending you out and into mission. In other other words, you are to become an ambassador of this same revolutionary message. To verse 47, proclaim this message to all the nations. Verse 48, to be witnesses of these things. Again, G.K. Chesterton reference here. He wrote about the centrifugal force of Christianity. And you know what centrifugal force is, right? It's the feeling you have when inertia's forces are, are pulling on you and pushing on you as you go around a sharp turn in the road or when you were a little kid and you were playing at the park with your friends and you were spinning each other on the merry-go-round and you felt like you were just going to get pulled off of that merry-go-round. It was going so fast, right? It, it's pressing on you. It's moving you out. It's spinning you out. Here's what the Bible says. God has existed for all eternity in perfect relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect love, perfect harmony, perfect relationship for all eternity. But when He saw you cut off and broken in relationship and outside of relationship with Him, He spun out. He moved out in love for you. He sent His Son to die for you, to be raised from the dead for you, to give you that relationship back, the one you lost by your sin. And if grace like that, if centrifugal love like that, if it hits you, and if it pulls you into its orbit, it creates a centrifugal force. Where once your heart was bent and curved in on itself, it moves you out in love for others to proclaim this good news in word and deed. Read the stories of the disciples. The miracle of the resurrection, it revolutionized and changed their lives. 2,000 years ago, Jesus' body was laid in a grave, and they thought, we'll never hear any more of those words of revolution. But then Sunday came, and everything changed. It It had to change. It can never be the same again. And the last little thing I'll say is this. Some of you don't believe this. And you're questioning this. And that's perfectly fine. 
happy to have you here as you think these things out. But I do want you to know that very often, the first step to believing all of this is really to start thinking, what if? I mean, what if? It's really true. The first step in believing is very often wishing and hoping it were true, and it is. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. Give yourself to him. Come to the revolutionary king and to his revolutionary joy and message that would change your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have had this fall together to look through Luke's Gospels, uh, to consider the miracles of Jesus, to be amazed by His compassion, His mercy, and His power. Father, we pray that this morning Your Word would be written upon our hearts, that we would realize that in Jesus' resurrection we have Your receipt the verdict is in, and there's nothing left for us to pay because He has paid it all, and that all His righteousness has been given to us so that we could know we are loved and accepted and secure in Him. Father, we pray that You would change us, that You would send us out in mission. We pray that You would change us and give us a deep joy that cannot be shaken. Father, we pray that You would, you would change us. And that you would, at the very center of our lives, put the Lord Jesus Christ and his work in order that we would worship and be changed in every sphere of life. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.